HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a full-service marketing and commerce platform that helps restaurants get discovered, make more money, and engage their diners. Join over 8,000 restaurants already using Bento Box today to deliver better hospitality. Visit getbento.com hrn today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com hrn. Are you a business owner? This spring, amplify your business and support HRN's mission by becoming a business member. HRN is dedicated to spotlighting small businesses that keep our communities vibrant. With a $500 business membership, HRN can shine a light on your work and you can help sustain our mission to transform the way people think about food. As a thank you for this tax-deductible donation, your business will receive on-air mentions, social media posts, listings on our website, and more. You will also play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org biz to become a business member today. That's heritageradionetwork.org B-I-Z. For me, Ramadan is associated with shared community of tar dinners and crowded nightly prayers. But there are a million ways to observe the holy month. And every family, culture, and community has different traditions. But even despite those differences, Muslims around the world are bracing themselves for how social distancing will impact the holy month. To me, Ramadan both is and isn't about food. On the one hand, only eating twice a day, once before sunrise and once after sunset, makes food and eating feel even more significant. And I often find myself spending lots of time thinking about food. Thinking about what I'm going to eat at iftar, what new recipe I'm going to try. And on the other hand, Ramadan is a month of spiritual rejuvenation. A month of deep reflection and soul work. But still, I think there's something else about iftar about sharing a meal with a group of people after you've all spent the day fasting, whether that's family, friends, or even complete strangers at the mosque. I already think about sharing a meal as an intimate act, but iftar resonates in that way even more. That was Danya Abdelhamid reflecting on her own relationship with Ramadan and the traditional fast-breaking meal iftar on a special bonus episode of Meat and Three. 
Ramadan begins on April 2nd, when Muslims worldwide observe a month of daily fasting as well as come together for prayer and reflection. For several days, this practice will overlap with the remainder of Lent, a 40-day period leading up to Easter, when many Christians abstain, often from eating meat, in remembrance of Jesus' sacrifice. Food and religion collide in many ways, from fasting to feasting, and through strict rules, symbolic dishes, and traditional foodways that span across centuries. Today we look closely at this relationship, examining what holy texts and historical circumstances can tell us about how we eat today. I'm Katie Mosman-Wadler, and this is Meat and 3 on HRN. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. Meat and 3. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal. For your ears. Meat and three. The majority of Jews today are Ashkenazi, meaning they descend from Central and Eastern Europe. At the center of this culture have always been food traditions, from Shabbat meals to the Passover Seder. Ashkenazi Jews born far away from their ancestral homelands are asking the question, what does the historical legacy of this cuisine mean for me? Sophie Talkov Berko speaks with a leader of the Jewish food renaissance about the modernization of Ashkenazi Jewish cuisine. My name is Jeffrey Oskowitz. I'm a food entrepreneur and Jewish food expert. Uh, and with the Gefilteria, I am a co-founder and the chief pickler. The first thing we did was we actually manufactured, started manufacturing an artisanal gefilte fish, which we sold in stores. Uh, but we quickly uh, thereafter, after launching, found that um, we were really interested in connecting with people, connecting them to these food traditions. Many Ashkenazi Jews have a fractured relationship with Ashkenazi culture due to the Holocaust. The Gefilteria is reclaiming this heritage and culinary legacy by connecting Ashkenazi Jews to the roots of their food traditions. Often what we see in the Jewish delis or in homes is more akin to shtetl cooking. And the shtetl is a Yiddish term meaning town. And uh, so I always like to say that, you know, I'm a shtetl cook. And uh, my relationship with this culture and cuisine uh, was conflicted. All my grandparents were born in Poland. I grew up in a family of survivors. I was fortunate enough to have my mother's parents talk about their experiences during the war, but also before and after. Uh, And they spoke with love about Poland, where they were from, about their food culture and general culture. Uh, However, I found that when I went to a school, many of my Ashkenazi friends were embarrassed about their food traditions. Um, so uh, part of my goal with the Gefilteria and with my, my business partners when we started it was to reinstill a sense of pride and honor in this beautiful tradition and painting a little bit of a different picture that matched more the stories that I was told by my grandmother. While researching for his cookbook on Ashkenazi cuisine, Jeffrey came to realize that foods considered fundamentally Jewish in America are rooted in Eastern European cuisine. It was a very humbling moment for me to realize how Polish or how Eastern European, how Slavic in some ways my family was, uh, and that I just always assumed these things were uniquely Jewish because in New York, the pickle became Jewish, but everyone in Eastern Europe 
is making pickles. In fact, that's how you survive the winter. That's how you survived before refrigeration. And so um, it made me start to understand my my family's relationship to the lands of Eastern Europe very differently and to the people. Famine and resourcefulness, along with local food traditions in both Eastern Europe and America, created what we now know as Ashkenazi Jewish food. Schmaltz, a vital ingredient in Ashkenazi cuisine, is rendered chicken fat that uses every last scrap of poultry. The bagel originated in South Germany, but came to America from the Polish shtetl. The pastrami sandwich was first served in America by a Jewish-Lithuanian immigrant using old-world meat-curing techniques from Romania. What I think defines Ashkenazi Jewish food culture, well, there's a few different things, but like with a sense of community, uh, a, a connection to land and to resourcefulness, which is such a part of it, uh, to creativity and, uh, and to, to a wisdom, to understanding really about why these foods go together. Like I always say, the pastrami goes with the pickle because the naturally fermented pickle is going to help you digest the pastrami sandwich. It's probiotic. And uh, the pastrami sandwich, as we know it, is really an American invention using Eastern European ingredients. While Jewish food varies by regional influences, at the core of these food traditions has always been community. You know, the deli used to be known as the secular synagogue. And for me, a good deli, the food needs to be good, but the atmosphere needs to be good. The, the hosts need to make you feel welcome. You want to feel like you're eating in community, even if it doesn't have to be a Jewish community, but there's that vibe. And uh, Ashkenazi Jewish food is the core of everything. I mean, the practice of Jewish life is through the meals and through the food. While your pickle may descend from Eastern Europe, Ashkenazi Jews have made this cuisine their own. Whether it's the iconic pastrami sandwich or redefining the bagel, there is a long historical legacy behind what makes Ashkenazi Jewish food Jewish food. Foodways change in light of immigration, scarcity, religion. Even ingredients themselves can evolve. Take most pork products, for example. For thousands of years, most pork products have been a no-go for those who keep kosher and halal. But with the rise in popularity of fake meat and dairy products, the lines between what's acceptable and what's not are beginning to blur. Ellie Katz speaks with journalist Jonah Goldman Kay about what happened when pork got a meatless makeover. Back in the fall of 2021, both the OU, the organization that certifies kosher products, and Ifanka, which certifies halal products, announced that impossible pork would not be certified by either organization. The product doesn't contain any meat or animal products, but there's more to it than that. Here's Jonah, who covered the decision for the counter. In Judaism, pork is not entirely prohibited. Um, unless you're very, very religious, the only restriction is on the meat of the animal itself, not on the bone, not on the skin. Whereas in Islam, there's a prohibition on the entirety of the animal. So for Afanka, it was because it was labeled as pork. The, they have a list of words that they don't certify products for. Um, pork is one of those words. Afanka took a very hard line. No, we are never certifying this product. It is pork. That is the end of the story. The OU was like, we're not certifying it now, 
come back to us in a few years. Even though the OU could reconsider the product in the future, their initial decision is less about Jewish law and more about Jews' discomfort with eating something that tastes, looks, and cooks like pork. But many think certifying impossible pork could be a gateway to increasingly complex debates about alternative meat and religious dietary restrictions. Like, it's kind of a big rift in both communities right now that is slowly widening. And impossible pork is kind of a minor blip on the way to bigger bump, which is lab-grown meats and sort of how you conceive of that. Um, and the jury's still very much out, I think. All the, the religious leaders I spoke to said that, you know, there's, there's some differing opinions. Some people accept it. Some people are not a fan of it. But the rift is more than just a matter of labeling. On a deeper level, communities are starting to question what all these new products mean for the future of religious foodways. For example, according to Kashrut, or Kosher Law, preparing and consuming meat and dairy products together is forbidden. The kosher kitchen should have two different sets of utensils, dishes, pots, pans, and, in an ideal scenario, different sinks. Fake meat and dairy products blur the lines big time. We might start to see entirely different conceptions of what's kosher and halal and what's not. I think overall, there's a kind of understanding that a sort of split is happening where some people are comfortable with sort of expanding the definition of what kashrut and halal involve and others are in a more narrow and like more conservative approach. One thing that I do think on that note is really, was really interesting was um, what Danny Nevin said when I spoke with him, where he mentioned that while impossible pork could be kosher, right? What, what happens to Jewish foodways when you have fake meat and fake dairy possibly together in the same kitchen? They might be allowed on paper, but like what's happening to this conception of what kashrut is when you put those two products in one kitchen together and serve them together? This isn't the first time religious communities have reconsidered what's kosher or halal, and it won't be the last. As Jonah writes in his piece for The Counter, it's these divisions that have historically pushed Islam and Judaism forward. As so often happens, our biggest debates about what's ethical and good play out in our food. With questions of climate and sustainable meat consumption constantly in the background, we're faced with a dilemma as old as religious obligation itself. What do we do when our faith bumps up against the world around us? We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Bento Box, a restaurant marketing and commerce platform that helps you get discovered, make more money, and engage your diners so you can deliver great hospitality both in person and online. Did you know that over 70% of diners research a restaurant online before going in person? Your digital front door is more important than ever. Let Bento Box design and build you a website with online ordering and catering e-commerce, and event management that is optimized specifically for restaurants. With built-in marketing tools like SEO and automated email campaigns, keeping your diners engaged and coming back has never been easier. Join over 8,000 restaurants that leverage Bento Box to power their digital presence and deliver great hospitality. Visit getbento.com 
slash HRN today to get your first month free. That's getbento.com slash HRN. Hey, everyone. I'm Jesse Sparks, host of the new podcast, The One Recipe, from the team behind The Splendid Table. This pod is all about that one recipe that you lean on. The one you share with friends, the one you make when you need a little love, and the one you know will work every single time. Every week, I talk with chefs and gifted cooks from all over the world about their one and the story behind it. We're here to help you build your kitchen library one dish at a time. Follow the one recipe wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Meat and Three. One of the Ten Commandments in the Bible states, Thou shalt not kill. For some people, this includes the killing of animals and thus justifies a no-meat diet. Whether or not you interpret the Sixth Commandment in this way, vegetarian and vegan diets have been included in religion since the very beginning. Kiara Thomas takes a look at how vegetarian and vegan diets have been included in religious texts. Genesis one twenty nine, when God says, behold, which biblical scholars say is very unusual. He didn't often use a word like that that implies this is important. Pay attention to this one. I have given you every herb bearing seed and every fruit that has seed within it. This shall be your meat. Now, it's very curious when we think about this, that Eden was vegan. This is Victoria Moran, a plant-based lifestyle coach and author of the Main Street Vegan Academy cookbook. So I think of Adam and Eve in this story as being on the Hawaiian vacation diet. They were eating fruits and nuts, but all the animals were also vegetarian. There are multiple passages in the Bible where meat is refused. We also have the story of Daniel when he and his comrades were captured by an enemy king, they refused the king's dainties. They refused the meat. They refused the alcohol. Daniel and his friends refused the meat because it was unclean, and the animals weren't killed properly under the Levitical law, among many reasons. And they showed that after a period of a month, that they were more muscular and fitter than the other uh, p- um, men in the king's army, from eating lentils and vegetables. And it's just, it's little pieces throughout. And in the Eastern traditions, of course, there's a lot more. Jainism is very firmly vegetarian, always has been. The Buddha taught vegetarianism and even veganism. He said that the monks should not um, take milk. And we know that Buddhism divided into a couple of parts. And so we get in the Mahayana tradition, the vegetarianism uh, continued. And in the Theravada tradition, not so much, but it's still there at the core. And then, of course, in in Hinduism, uh, the idea of ahimsa, of reverence for life, of not taking life that we can't create. It's all through these traditions. Many religions have diet restrictions when it comes to meat. Traditional Jewish law says to eat kosher foods, which exclude pigs, shrimp, and other meats. Islamic law says to eat halal foods, which exclude pork and carnivorous animals and other meats as well. In Hinduism, the scriptures say to respect living creatures. Therefore, most Hindus are vegetarian. Even Hindus who eat meat won't eat beef because cows are sacred animals. But why has a strict diet become more prevalent among Christians? 
Why isn't vegetarianism or veganism a more core part of some religions? It's easy sometimes to push them aside because it's one of the few religious teachings that causes us to really have to do something in our personal lives every single day to make a big change, an actual physical change for those of us who grew up eating animal products. So it's a little bit more of an admonition than love thy neighbor because we can say, oh yeah, I do that. (laughs) But you don't really have to make a concrete change. As a plant-based diet becomes more popular, will Christianity be a source of inspiration for people becoming vegetarian or even vegan? The Christian Vegetarian Association is one organization with this mission at its heart. It's been around since the late 90s, and who knows, maybe they're ahead of a growing trend. For some Christians, what's on your plate is not just about getting closer to God. It's also about distancing yourself from the devil. Sarah Mathis brings us this story. The biblical story of the fall goes something like this. Adam and Eve are created by God. He leaves them to their own devices in the Garden of Eden with one rule. Don't eat from the tree of knowledge. Now, of course, they simply must, at the behest of a snake, eat the forbidden fruit. And ultimately, they are punished by God, cast out of paradise, and pass their sin on to all of humankind. This story is among the first presented in the Bible, and... It's especially central in Christianity because... uh, as compared to Jewish commentators, Christians see the serpent as being the devil, uh, which is not literally there in the text. It's it's something that's sort of a, a layer that's been added on through Christian interpretation. And so that's an important detail for understanding why the devil matters for the history of Christianity and food. That was Klaus Yoder, a professor of religion at Vassar College and a host of Seven Heads, Ten Horns, a podcast about the history of the devil. I sat down with Klaus to dive into the connection between the devil and the role of fasting in Christian theology. And his explanation for the theological import of food's role in the fall wasn't exactly what I expected. It's not the eating the apple per se that causes humanity's fall from grace. Uh, It's the corrupted will of Adam and Eve to sort of be interested in disobeying God. So within the Christian tradition, food is not in and of itself a bad thing, but it can be used as a tool by the devil to tempt humans into sin. This logic is still prevalent in Christian cultures today. After poking around in a sea of Christian diet literature, I found myself neck deep in a YouTube video posted by televangelist Katie Souza, entitled, Satan Uses Food to Kill Us. In it, she warns that demons will try to make you fat with excessive food cravings. And the key to weight loss, she says, is ridding yourself of demons and healing your soul. As someone who was raised Catholic and is now admittedly an atheist, I was a bit surprised to hear all this talk of demons in the 21st century. But after speaking with Klaus, I realized that this sermon has its roots in the ideas of early Christian monastic and ascetic communities. These communities focused on disciplining the will through controlling diet, exercise, prayer, sexual activity, etc., and began to form in the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. One influential thinker of this cohort was Evagoras Ponticus, a monk who was active in the 4th century. He understood that 
there was sort of like a tripartite model of the human being that you have like a mind or an intellect, a soul, which sort of mediates between your body and your mind. Um, and so the passions were the sorts of movements of the body and, and the soul that could be influenced by demons. And so what the idea was, was to sort of have monastics discipline themselves and sort of achieve a state of what, what translates literally into English as apathy, but a sense of, of being free of demonic interference in the passions. And the demons weren't the passions themselves. Like it wasn't demonic per se that you were hungry, but it's demonic to fixate on food and to maybe become like underhanded about how you get food or to hoard food or these sorts of things, if that makes sense. To control the passions, these monks ate a very simple, frugal diet consisting of bread, oil, water, and perhaps the occasional vegetable. To learn more about the logic behind the denial of the more sensuous pleasures, I consulted Dr. Ken Albala, eminent food historian, professor at University of the Pacific, and veteran HRN guest. You were punishing your body, in a sense, to, sh to strengthen your soul. But their logic was that if you really want to stay, uh, be penitent and avoid sexual activity, the best thing to do would be avoid meat, because meat is something that gets translated into sperm in both men and women, which I know <laughs> makes no sense in our system, but this is standard Galenic physiology. And that excess of food, especially very nutritious food like meat and wine, will get converted into sperm in your body, which triggers your libido, which makes you want to get busy. Not only could the consumption of certain foods lead to sexual temptation, gluttony was thought to be the gateway drug to all the other major sins. So the theory that Evagrius has is that you that that gluttony, the, the sort of vice or the demon around eating, is at the foundation of all the other major demonic temptations. So he has like these eight, what he calls the eight generic thoughts or the eight sort of eight demons that that get at people uh, and especially are interested in targeting the monks in like psychological spiritual warfare. So the baseline one is gluttony. Then there's lust. Then there's love of money. Then there's sadness. Then there's anger. Then there's Acadia, vainglory, and pride. So goes the slippery slope. At the time, the practice of this sort of strict fasting was limited to certain monastic and ascetic communities. However, during the early Middle Ages, the ascetic approach to food was adapted by the wider community. And like in many other religions, as Kiara pointed out in the last story, this meant restrictions on certain animal products. They thought, let's, let's ban meat during the 40 days from Ash Wednesday to Easter, minus Sundays because we can't fast on the holy day, you know, but those 40 days avoid meat, eggs, cheese, dairy products. And the logic was that those are all hot and moist, humorally categorized such as hot and moist, so that if you ate cold and uh, dry foods or cold and moist foods, they're less nutritious, they're less likely to um, stimulate your libido. So the idea is eat vegetables, eat fish, eat beans. From the early Middle Ages up until the Reformation and until Vatican II in the Catholic Church, in addition to Lent, there were institutionalized fast days on Fridays, Saturdays, and in some places, Wednesdays. 
There are also days of fasting on saints' days and the quarter temporae, the four days that fall on the equinoxes and solstices. But the days before those fast days, you feast. And the most you know, notorious of these is Fat Tuesday or Mardi Gras, when everyone in England, they would eat pancakes, you know, to use up all the eggs and the butter. Um, in other countries, they, you know, have sausages. And, then, and the whole, whole spirit of carnival is to indulge as much as you possibly can and make fun of everyone and turn the world upside down. And when the whole thing is over, everything goes back into place and the social order is strengthened and, you know, it, so it serves as a kind of safety valve, I think. So perhaps, as I should have expected, with such an old, widespread and varied religion, the Christian attitude towards food cannot be summed up so easily. I think you're, you're only getting half the picture if you look at the penitential fasts without the feasts that, that precede them. And I think what's interesting is that that is embedded in Catholic ritual. Food is central, you know. When we get to Calvinism, uh, all the Calvinist churches beginning in Geneva and then inspired by, in um, the Netherlands and Scotland and the, the Puritans in England and, of course, Massachusetts later, their idea is that they should eat the same sort of foods, very simple, very frugal, just enough to, you know, feed yourself without any extravagances or spices or, you know, luxurious foods, and that you should have the same diet year-round. And as Ken pointed out to me, these food habits that we can trace all the way back to Calvinism and even in part to the ascetic traditions we talked about earlier, have really informed American food culture. We tend to think of indulgence as something a bit shameful and obscene. It's not hard to see how those ingrained feelings might support the idea that the devil was in the dessert all along. But perhaps there's some solace in knowing that Christian foodways aren't all fast and no feast. In addition to food-centric Christian practices, there is biblical support for the idea that Christianity should involve the removal of food restrictions. In one instance, the disciple Peter has a dream in which he is presented with a giant net of all kinds of foods, kosher and not kosher. He is commanded by God to kill and eat all that was presented to him. And as you heard in the last story, there is also support for a Christian vegetarian or vegan diet. I guess what I'm getting at here is, it seems to me that Christianity is a big tent. And between you and me, I think there's plenty of demon-free options at the buffet. That's our show. Thanks for listening. Learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week by checking out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Isaac Furman, Sophie talkov Burko, Ellie Katz, Kiara Thomas, and Sarah Mathis. Meet in Three is produced by Matt Patterson, Dylan Hoyer, and me, Katie Mosman-Wadler. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say, hey, Write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>